Hello everyone and welcome back for another episode of the Digital Assessment Podcast. We're on episode two of season two and today I am very excited because I'm joined by Donald Lancaster who is a Director of Studies at the University of Bath. Donald has worked with us for several years now and he has got some really interesting insights into digital assessment, that kind of early adoption stage and how things have changed over the pandemic and how he sees things going in the next few years. Hello, Donald. Thank you very much for speaking with me today on the podcast. I know that you've been working with Inspira for a little while, so I'm really interested to hear from you and find out what your experience has been and just dig into some of your insights really with digital assessment. Well, thank you, Susanna. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So do you want to just give yourself a quick introduction and talk about a bit about you and and what you do at the University of Bath? Yeah, sure. My current role is as associate professor, and I'm also director of teaching for our MBA programs in the School of Management. I've been with the university for, I suppose, about eight years. And before that, had a relatively long career in advertising around the world. And my interest in in digital exams started in 2017 when I had to uh, hand mark 800 handwritten essays in a period of three weeks, (laughs) which was a a demanding task, shall we say. Uh, And very shortly after that, I happened to be at a teaching conference and was first exposed to the idea of uh, digital exams and therefore digital grading processes, which was obviously of extreme interest to me. Brilliant. And I can imagine that 800 scripts is i i can't imagine the kind of hand cramp that you might have after that um hand, I, hand cramp and eye cramp because obviously 800 different sets of handwriting some of which was frankly awful uh, <laughs> it's a difficult thing to do and it takes much much longer to read badly written scripts and inevitably it affects the way that you feel about the student's work yes So I was a secondary school teacher and I never marked 800, but possibly sometimes a hundred. So I can only imagine what it would be like to mark that many. So in the past couple of episodes that we've been recording, we've been talking about innovation in assessment and how institutions have used digital assessment to innovate their teaching and assessment practices. And as I said, I'm really interested to speak with you because you've been using Inspira for, for a few years now. And so I imagine that you've got some interesting things to share with other institutions who might be considering digital assessment or just at the beginning of their process. And I, I think we can start off by talking about the University of Bath's journey to digital assessment. Can you talk through how that process started off in the university and kind of how it's developed over over the past few years. Yes, sure. Um, So following that teaching conference, when I saw a presentation, and by luck it happened to be from Inspira, I managed to arrange a trial. Uh, So the first trial I did was with a group of master's students. It was a high stakes exam, so their, their final exam. I had to make it voluntary because clearly this was a trial of a new system. So the university wouldn't allow me to make it mandatory and putting it to the class, about 70% of them elected 
to use the, the software platform, use an e-exam and about 30% decided that they would handwrite as they always had. And it was a fascinating trial, obviously being the first one, there was lots of unknowns. We did use a safe exam browser and lockdown, and that had mostly smooth application, but there were one or two issues we can come back to if you like. Having done the exam, which worked flawlessly in, in process, all of those who took it digitally were delighted that they had, and all of those who'd handwritten said that now they wished they'd done it digitally. So that seemed to me to be a bit of a vote of confidence from the student body. Absolutely. I had reported all that back to the university, to the, the Center for Learning and Teaching and various other parts of the institution, if you like. And uh, that was positively received. I then ran a few more trials at different levels. So some undergrad, some masters using different forms of tests. So some multiple choice or multiple answer or graphic questions or whatever, rather than just straightforward essay type questions. And other people in the institution also picked it up. So other faculties, apart from the School of Management, which is where I am, were starting to do some trials as well. Um, so we worked closely on them. And in the end, I think we ran about 15 different trials in the university. They were limited in that the, because they were trials, we couldn't integrate the Inspira platform with other bits of the university infrastructure, the, the SITS system, for instance, or the VLE system. So they were standalone, which meant that the administrative staff had quite a lot of work to do in terms of entering the student databases for, so that the students could access the tests and then extracting stuff so that they could go to external moderators or, or examiners or whatever. Yeah. Nonetheless, it was clearly working well. We also trialed using university computer labs, as opposed to bring your own devices. All of my trials were, were BYOD, um, but we trialed in, in other ways using labs, which is a little more painful, I'd have to say. Although there were significant issues around uh, providing power to bring your own devices when we were running these on campus in invigilated spaces. Yeah. We managed it because we simply used a whole lot of taped down wonder cables so that we were able to provide a PowerPoint between every three or four students. And that was fine. We also had certain issues around the provision of hardware. Clearly you can't disadvantage students who don't have appropriate hardware. So we needed to provide a certain amount of standby uh, laptops to cover for either those who didn't have appropriate hardware or those whose hardware failed immediately prior to the test. But that, that all seemed to be manageable. I suppose around about the beginning of 2019, that process ground to a, a bit of a halt because most of the large scale venues at our institution do not have power to every desk. We're using things like gymnasium halls for, for large scale exams. And there aren't a whole load of PowerPoints all over the floor in a gymnasium for obvious reasons. And indeed it turned out that there wouldn't have been enough power to the building had we been able to install so many sockets. So it was going to be a really expensive process to be able to run BYOD exams in large venues. So that was a bit of a sort of stumbling block, but then along comes COVID and everything that we know about that. 
And of course, because we had done these trials, we were in a great place to say, this is going to be a much better solution. So in the first iteration of COVID, uh, we obviously couldn't run exams in large venues or indeed in the uh, university campus at all. And a lot of people tried to do things on the VLE and really that doesn't work. And a VLE is designed to be a VLE. It's not designed to be a large scale assessment tool. So when, when loads and loads of students were trying to upload their assessment submissions, the, the VLE falls over. So th there was clear ammunition for us to be using dedicated digital exam platform, uh, such as Inspira. And we did, we, we, uh, in the spring of 2020, we, or actually just before the end of, of 2019, we decided we were going to move wholesale to adoption of this platform. We had 11 weeks in which to, to install it and do it across the entire institution and hopefully bring both the student body, the faculty and academic staff and the administrative staff with us. So, so it was quite a challenge. Um, yes. But it worked. And, and you know, although there were, there were plenty of people who are inevitably somewhat change resistant or who could foresee problems, it actually worked pretty seamlessly in, in the first iteration of it, which was very limited, but effective. And since then we've been continued running it. We, we have decided this is the future. We're going to stay with it. And we are broadening out the functionality of the platform that we are opening up to both academics and students. That's really interesting to hear about the process. And I believe that you also have a recording of an interview with Stuart Redhead. So it would be brilliant to hear from him as well. Sure. I was, I was pleased to be able to talk uh, with Stuart Redhead, who is um, one of our learning technologists, who was very instrumental in helping us to implement this system across the university. And here's what he had to say about this. So team that had been put together um, were the people who were subject at experts, should we say, or single point to excellence <laughs> around the university for all, all the different touch points that, that the project would and will touch. So you're talking um, administrative people, you're talking students, you're talking academic staff, you're talking support technicians, you're talking people who actually run the whole process of an examination period of several weeks, which is no mean, you know, it's, it's a very complicated thing to construct a timetable like that. And so, so we had all the, all these people pulled together in, I mean, two to three hours on a team's meeting in a workshop is quite exhausting, but we, we broke it up into I think four or five sessions and we were able to involve everybody at the right time, in the right place to get those conversations, to understand how, what essentially is a jigsaw fitted together. Um, we were probably in the position we were at because of the pandemic and COVID that again, sort of flipped the way, not to say the project teamwork, but the, the way the project had to work in, in sense of all the effort of the project team of all these people was to get it working. Within about, I can't remember, 11 weeks. We had 11 weeks to yeah. basically. It was a time, wasn't it? I remember it well. Finish the integrations, finish the understanding how the processes could work, 
Um, and then we pressed the button and, and released the exams to the students. You know, it was a real big moment, big bang. You, in any other deployment, you wouldn't do it that way. But we were kind of, because of the global situation, that was where we were at. And um, it was challenging. But because we did it that way, I think the lessons we have learned go a long way to help other people who don't necessarily have those pressures um, to understand how, you know, what not to do <laughs> or what to do and how to do it, you know, through our, through our own experiences. Um, and the first thing I would say to people is if they're going down this, this route is it takes a lot of time to make sure you have the right people, not to bring in the, the platform, but to get the people who are going to be authoring the questions to understand that it's not just about writing a, a, a an exam that you might write sit give students to sit an example and then just sort of uploading it in, in a word document it, you've got you've got to, you, you have to think about the difference between students at an example and the students sat in front of a computer and understand how you can change and in many cases have to change your assessment to meet those differences and affordances that the technology brings and yeah. um that's really interesting and i've got quite a few questions um, <laughs> sure, yeah. to follow up from that i think the first one going right back to the start you said that most students in the initial trial wanted to do their exam digitally and that a small group didn't um but that they wish they had i'm wondering do you have any kind of information on why they wish they had? Was it kind of because of the ease of use, because of, well, hand cramp, which is a, <laughs> a, a thing that all of us suffer from if we handwrite our exams? Do you have a sense of, or do you have any kind of specific reasons from particular students why they would have preferred to do it online? I think there's a number of different reasons. I think maybe sensible to look at the, uh, the provenance of it. So, so why did they decide not to do it in the first place? And I suspect yeah. that that was to do with fear of the unknown in most cases. So because they'd never done a digital exam, that's a scary thing. And because it's a high stakes exam, it's an even more scary thing. So I think the, the, the choice to stick with the familiar is understandable. Yes. But having seen their colleagues, their, their fellow students sail through the thing easily and there were no problems in, in the thing running and they were able to, to submit their stuff without any, any issues at all. I think they realized that actually there wasn't very much to be scared of. We, we certainly had some concerns raised about things like, well, what happens if everybody's typing away and that noise is distracting? Actually with most modern laptops, there is very little noise when you type and it turned out not to be an issue at all. Actually more of an issue in a computer lab where they were using desktop PCs with slightly more clunky keyboards. So I think it was, it was really you know, the, um, the fear of the unknown. And once it became visible through other people doing it, that, that fear evaporated. That makes sense. Yeah. I can imagine if, uh, you're about to sit an exam that makes up a significant proportion of your grade for the year, then you probably don't want to do it in a way that you feel you might misunderstand or, or anything like that. And I know that you also had a conversation about the general student reception, what they found convenient and what they found more difficult or intimidating about digital assessment. 
and you spoke about this with Jacob Withington, who is the education officer at the Student Union at the University of Bath. So I will play that snippet now and find out what he had to say. So, so anecdotally, and really broad brush, do you think that the, there is a sort of groundswell of, of broad approval or groundswell of dismay and terror? <laughs> I th- yeah, I think broadly there is approval. Appreciate, people appreciate the accessibility, for example, um, whether it's for disabled students or international students who can take it from the comfort of their home and not have to travel back and forth um, equally home students who don't have to travel back and forth a much shorter distance, but still annoying, um, uh, seem to appreciate it. Um, I think there are some issues that have arisen with um, people encountering technical issues um, with their examination, which you wouldn't usually encounter with the paper exam um, and how those are dealt with. Um, and then the fears of online proctoring uh, are starting to come in. But that's separate to the online exam issue. I think it needs to be yeah. separate, really, because online exams are still good. Um, and while there are the reservations about invigilation online, that shouldn't separate from the fact, really. Well, there's some issues with collusion, um, I guess, and there, there are elements of the design of the exam comes into that and takes play. But I guess that there's certain things that you can't, can't prevent where someone may actually just be doing it for you. Um, similarly, um, exams may be in design, maybe be in designed um, for particularly difficult formatting that you can't do in a certain time frame that you wouldn't usually be expected to do in a handwritten um, exam, but suddenly you've got to format it in a certain way, which takes some time. Um, there, there are also so, so almost conversely some issues with accessibility. So while it has great advantages for um, international disabled students, for example, um, on the flip side, if someone doesn't have adequate uh, technical equipment, they may be disadvantaged, um, but although mitigations can be put in place for that, so if the university provides um, areas where students can do exams uh, with adequate equipment, that is a feasible solution. And so that's a really interesting input from students and how they see the benefits and potential drawbacks of digital assessment, uh, which might be quite different to how academics feel or um, how administrators feel or learning technologists. So kind of on the flip side, I have another question. I I think you touched on this too, but you said that this wasn't just an issue for students. There were staff in the institution who maybe felt unsure about using digital assessment. Do you think the reasons for that were the same or are there some differences there? I think the reasons are broadly speaking the same. I think there is inevitably with certain members of, of the population at large, there is change resistance. And when people are very familiar with, with operating exams in a certain way, writing them in a certain way, going through the system in a certain way, to upend all that is uh, unsettling and probably requires learning new skills, learning new, new bits of equipment, learning new practices, which for busy academics in what is the busiest time of year may seem like quite hard work. Yes, definitely. The other thing that you mentioned is that it seems that one of the biggest hurdles was making sure that everybody had power to be able to set these assessments. Were there any other hurdles that, well, any of the stakeholders, students, academics, administration staff had to overcome that took a significant amount of time when you were rolling out digital assessment? 
I think the, the biggest hurdle actually for us was time because we literally had, I mean, obviously there was a fixed assessment period for the, uh, exams and we had from the point of deciding that we were going down this route and therefore buying the Inspira license, we had 11 weeks to implement it. So there really wasn't time to do a sequenced program of training. You know, we would like to have started by training the administrative staff who are going to have to run this stuff, or even before that training the technical staff who could then train the administrative staff, who could then broaden it out to reassure and train the academics and introduce the thing to the students. And I would certainly advocate from everything that I'd done in tests, the importance of allowing students to have pre-tests so that they're familiar with the software before they go into an exam. There really wasn't time to do much of that at all. So trying to implement at speed was the biggest challenge, really. Yes. And I think that seemed to be very common among universities in the past couple of years, needing to really have something up and running as quickly as possible and just being able to run the exams was the priority. And then I suppose uh, from a slightly different angle, my other question was for you or the people that you work with, is there a difference in the way that you have maybe designed your exams since you implemented it? And if not, do you think you would change that in the future? Or yeah, I suppose my question is how has, if at all, going digital change the way that you author an exam? Yeah, very good question. And one which is uh, answerable in progress, if you like. Um, when we started, I think an aspect of change resistance from, from all quarters, really from, from academics, from the institution and possibly from students resulted in a load of exams being authored exactly as they had been, were they, uh, the, the previous analog system being uploaded onto the platform as PDFs being answered by students in whatever software they like, and then converted to PDFs and uploaded as submissions onto the, the Inspira platform. And then academics would download them and mark them in the traditional way. That seems to me to be um, steam driven. It seems to be missing huge benefits of functionality that the platform offers. Since then, I think that people have got uh, slightly more comfortable with the platform, they've become more familiar with some of the things it can do. And as an institution, we've released more of the functionality as well. So, so rather than just a very, very straightforward sort of question types, we've released more question type typology to allow greater flexibility of, of assessment. One of the things that we undoubtedly noticed because we were running uh, off-site exams, they all had to be open book and indeed for the first iteration, we, we ran them all as 24 hour exams, but in recognition of time zones, in recognition of student lack of familiarity with the software and in recognition of the fact that being open book, they would need to be able to reference stuff. We did notice inevitably that that 24 hours gave the opportunity for certain students to either collaborate with each other or even worse to collaborate with people who were, um, you know, providing solutions for them, if you like. Yeah. Uh, so that has prompted a lot of thought about how we actually do need to 
author exams in a very different way in this environment. And I think there's plenty of ways that we can do it. I think the, the functionality of the system means that we can easily offer assessments to students, which are not the same as each other in one cohort. So that yes, they can, they can collaborate, but they will find that there's not a lot of point because they're using a different yes. data set or a, a different, uh, different set of information or randomized questions or all sorts of other ways of, of uh, making those differences. We can turn exams around in such a way that instead of asking them for answers, we can ask them to critique something which they're provided with. And that, that's slightly more difficult to collaborate on. It's certainly more difficult for uh, things like essay mills to deal with. Yes. Or indeed, uh, as, as I think was, was pointed out in a, in a Times Higher Education article recently, if, if we find that students are going to collaborate, we can run assessments, which ask them to collaborate. Uh, yeah. and, and that's part of you know, the real world, the working life. So training them to collaborate is a good thing. And if they're assessed, asking them to collaborate, then so much the better. But I think that this is something which you know, we as an institution, our academics as individuals, and indeed the whole world of, of higher education is just wrestling with and thinking about how we can adapt to what is inevitably the future of assessment. Yes, and there was so much in the news in the past couple of years, particularly about contract cheating, as you've mentioned, uh, yeah. either purchasing an essay from an essay mill or, um, you know, in some cases, paying somebody else to seek your assessment. Yeah. And obviously that it's, that's a concern and there, are, there is software available that kind of minimizes that possibility, things like proctoring, lockdown browser that you mentioned. but. I think it's really interesting to think about the ways that assessment can be redesigned for a digital environment, because as you said, at a university in the world of work, very few people work in isolation. So collaboration is, is an important part of work. But I, I would have thought that these kind of assessments are, um, it, it takes a lot of time uh, and a lot of input from different people to think about how they would redesign them. W would you say that's that's the case? And do you think it's more of a long-term plan for a lot of universities to implement this kind of thing? I think it's, it, it's inevitably long-term because the process of invention of new ways is, uh, it's, it's not something that happens overnight and it's something which will continue and continue and continue. And it needs to continue because there will be inevitably ways that, that clever students find to get round inventions that we make to overcome that sort of issue. So it's got to be a, an ongoing and iterative process. I think, I think that as more institutions adopt digital exams, there are going to be more uh, intelligent, creative, innovative ways of using the platforms to provide uh, interesting assessments. So. I, I kind of look forward to reading more about how other institutions are, are approaching the problem. Maybe there is an, an, if not a responsibility, an onus on organizations like Inspira to help think about those sorts of solutions and provide ideas that would be useful for academics going forwards. Yes. And I think there's also an opportunity for, so for example, with somebody that I interviewed from uh, Shopping University in Sweden. He was talking about how different institutions that have used Inspira have hosted uh, work groups together to t share ideas and talk about how they do assessment. 
And what I thought was really interesting was that it wasn't necessarily the universities that had been doing online assessment for a long time that had all the ideas to share. In lots of cases, there was universities that were newer to it who who had new ideas too. And so there's an opportunity for institutions to be quite collaborative in, in their approach to digital assessment as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I was, I was amazed and really pleased when the University of Bath hosted the digital exam forum in 2020 and 2021, the over a thousand registrations for those things from all over the world in both years was, was gratifying, but largely from people who were prepared to chip in ideas, even though they're not using digital examinations. So it's, it's really interesting. And clearly there's an awful lot of very clever people out there who will have new interesting ways of, of developing assessments that do properly assess the learning objectives for programs, but also make, make the best possible use of the platform. Yes, definitely. And these, I I agree with you. I think these opportunities, events for speaking, sharing ideas and collaboration are are a big part of the move to digital assessment. And funnily enough, the, the, the conditions that have meant that for lots of institutions, digital assessment has been necessary because they couldn't be on campus are the same conditions that have meant that we have been able to host events and webinars for people all over the world and get loads of really different inputs from, you know, somebody's, uh, experience at a university in Australia is probably going to be quite different to India, to Norway, to the UK. And hearing those international stories has been, uh, has been brilliant in the past couple of years. Absolutely. And I, I was very struck by people talking both from Australia, as you mentioned, and also from several African countries where their student bodies are really widely distributed and, and much more rural than maybe the case in, in overpopulated European countries. Um, and in the, in those sorts of situations, inventive assessments that make use of the platform that either do or don't require uh, remote proctoring, uh, I think are, are really interesting and we, we've got a lot to learn. Definitely. So you, you mentioned remote proctoring and, and we, along with you hosted a session back in the summer on proctoring and, and student opinions and academic opinions. I'd be interested to hear if you could kind of summarize some of those, those thoughts that came up in the summer and maybe things that you have heard from people at your institution or others, what do we think the kind of place of proctoring is uh, today? Yeah, it's, it's a very complex and quite emotive subject. Um, yeah, it is. And I think we can, we can try and break it down into different perspectives. I think from an academic point of view, it seems like a really good idea. Uh, in most cases, to try to ensure academic integrity. And in the end, that's a benefit, obviously, to the institutions, but also to the students, because if there is integrity, it means that their degrees are valuable. If there isn't integrity, it means their degrees are inevitably seen as less valuable. Uh, So that needs to be understood. And I think as a consequence of that thinking, there needs to be much more education of students about the value that comes from academic integrity in in the longer run. I think from the point of view of um, students, there is inevitably nervousness about remote proctoring because 
and, and we've seen feedback on, from surveys on this sort of stuff. They imagine that there's going to be people watching them in their bedrooms and storing recordings of them and all sorts of stuff going on that, that uh, isn't really acceptable. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of nervousness about it and they, they, it's evidenced in all sorts of ways. It's evidenced by when we were having to do all of our lectures via teams or zoom or whatever, very few students would, would put their cameras on. So we would be lecturing just to a whole bunch of black squares, which is hardly satisfactory. Uh, no, <laughs> but, um, I think it's very interesting what in, in my discussions with students over the last sort of six months, I find that most of them are open to the idea of remote proctoring. So long as they understand what's involved and, and understand what's going on. I think that the collective student body represented by the students union are very nervous of it because you know, they, they want to protect students' interests, rightly so. So there needs to be a bit of education work done there. And I think because of all of that, I think the institution, the university and us, along with other universities are very, very risk averse. So they are cautious about remote proctoring as well. And all of that makes for a, for a pretty sort of dark soup, if you like. Um, so I think there is the need for much greater clarity of information about what could be involved in remote proctoring about the way that AI can be used in ways which uh, flag up potential inc incidents, but are not requiring somebody to be sitting, looking at you, typing away in your bedroom or whatever else you're doing in your bedroom. Uh, so that there isn't a, an invasion of privacy so that you can set thresholds as to what sort of incidents require somebody to actually intervene. And I think all of that would be reassuring for students then for the student union and therefore for the institution. But I think it's inevitable that this will happen. I think students recognize already that they share much more on social media than they ever would by having a, a remote proctoring system on for the duration of an exam. Uh, yeah. So once that trade-off is, is understood, then there's a little bit more relaxation. And once, once they sort of understand the, the larger scale benefits that e-examination can provide them, then the trade-off between remote proctoring um, and uh, the, the loss of any sort of sense of privacy, I think will become balanced in favor of e-examination and therefore remote proctoring. We did, um, alongside the digital examinations forum in the summer, we sent out a survey to students who've taken an exam on Inspira and there was definitely a sense of uncertainty about, um, you know, who is watching me, what happens to my data. And, and it, it seems to me, as you were saying, that if there was a better understanding and uh, clearer information about exactly how it works, it might be more reassuring. But at the same time, similarly to what you've just said, there were many, many students who said that they found it much more convenient, uh, less stressful to sit an exam either in their home or just using their own computer rather than writing because uh, lo lots of people saying you know I, I hardly ever write at length anymore maybe I did uh, in my early school career but at university I 
type all of my essays. Almost all of my communication is typed and so it feels stressful to write with a pen when I never do that. Why am I being asked to do it in, in a high stakes situation, which I think is completely understandable? I think it's very understandable. It, it brings to mind an interesting discussion I had with a couple of students uh, in one of these trials who said that they thought it was unfair to um, move to digital exams because they write faster than they type. And on, on the face value, you think, well, okay, that, that seems like a reasonable argument. But actually, most students, as you say, because of, of you know, years of, of using keyboards, type faster than they write and also use sort of editing tools of copy pasting and moving things around and making it look presentable and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so you could argue that it's actually unfair for exams to be handwritten in that context, because most students would do much better if they were able to use the advantages of computers. So it's just, just an interesting way of an interesting counterpoint, I think. Yes, of course, I, I still really like uh, handwriting and I do think there's still a place for that, but I think in a high stakes situation, it needs to feel familiar and, uh, and, and fair, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And in that context, I think there is a, a real advantage to BYOD exams rather than using uh, computer labs. Again, for, for reasons of familiarity, you know your machine, uh, your, your fingers are adept at using it, um, whereas yeah. different keyboards do feel different. Yes, definitely. So we've talked uh, a lot about security. We've talked about uh, comfort with digital tools and redesigning assessments, remote exams or digital exams on campus and at the University of Bath's journey to, to this. I'd be really interested, and I'm sure some of the people listening would be interested, to hear any advice that you would have to universities just starting on this journey or, or thinking about starting. What is the biggest or couple of biggest pieces of advice that you would like to share? Big question. Um I think, yes. <laughs> that, <laughs> I think the first thing that I'd say is that you need to have some strong champions in an institution uh, if you're going to move this forward. So I mean, ideally, if you can get your vice chancellor behind the thing and really driving it forwards, so that that's as good as it can get. And you need to have lots of, of mini champions in different places to help you take it forward. So that you need many champions from the administration team who are going to help you set up the infrastructure and the, the, uh, the linkage between the digital exam platform and your you know, existing databases and, and systems. You need to have some academics who are really behind using these systems. So they will be able to help other people adapt and maybe train the trainers as well, as it were. Uh, and it's a good idea to bring the student union or any sort of collective body of that sort with you as well to, to minimize change resistance. And then when you start to get into it, I think it's of critical value to run some unassessed low stakes pilots and, and tests with everybody who's going to be using the system so that when it comes to high stake exams, they are already familiar and they know that their hardware will work. They know that the software works and they know how to use that software. And there's going to be a, a minimum of, of induced stress as a result of change. 
so that people can actually focus on doing what they're meant to do in, in exams and uh, convey their learnings. And I think taking it step by step and allowing time is a good thing. Although I have to say that I think had it not been for the catalysts provided by the pandemic, we and other institutions would not have moved as fast as we have. I think it's inevitable that almost every higher education institution is going to move this way in the future. So it's really just a question of grasping that nettle and, and moving forwards, but doing so by bringing as many people with you as possible. Absolutely. So it's about getting everybody on board and, and making sure that they understand the change as much as possible to yeah, I don't, I, build enthusiasm and, and manage stress as well. I don't think it's going to be feasible to get everybody on board in any situation. Um, there's always going to be people who will resist change, who uh, think they know that they, the, the, the way they've always been doing things is the way they will always do things. But uh, getting as many people as possible on board is clearly critically important. And doing that by exposing them to the stuff when it, when it doesn't matter is, is a good way to, to move forward. Absolutely. Yes. So I suppose uh, getting everybody possible on board <laughs> yeah. is maybe a better way to put it. Okay. Thank you. That's really useful. So we're coming to the end now. And I have a question that I have asked, uh, I think, everybody who's come on the podcast so far. And the question is, how do you see assessment changing or evolving in the future? So whether that's next year, in five years, 10 years, uh, kind of up to you where you take this question. I know it's quite broad, but what are your thoughts? Hmm. Um, I think that there are numbers of things that are likely to change. I think if we look at the context of the UK, we are behind the curve in many ways in terms of the adoption of digitality in the exam space. So I would expect in the next five to 10 years that schools will move forwards and be using digital examination, which means that there'll be much greater familiarity from people coming to uh, higher education, and it will be expected that we will be using digital exams. So that's going to be a sort of sea change in experience and expectation. I think that there will be an evolution in what we try to assess. And I think probably for reasons of sort of you know, historical latency, there tends to be assessments on individual subjects, which are kind of unrelated to each other. And obviously both at school and at university, students study a number of different subjects. They may be in one related area. It may be across a quite diverse patch, but the assessments of those, those individual subjects that they are taught are kind of standalone. And I would expect that over the next five to 10 years, we will see a move towards a more holistic assessment across their entire program, as opposed to the individual components of that program and an assessment against the, the broader learning or intended learning outcomes of that program so that their work readiness, if you like, their uh, holistic understanding and application of learning is assessed in ways which will be better for employers to be able to recognize the sorts of people that they want and better for students in terms of linking all of their learnings together into something more cohesive. And I suspect that digital platforms will have a role to play in that. Quite how, I'm not sure, 
but uh, I suspect that, that the platforms will evolve at least as fast as, and probably faster than higher education wants. So, so I think that's an interesting space to watch. Yes, I think your point about schools, I've seen a lot in the news about the potential to digitize GCSEs and A-levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes on throughout the year making cross-curricular connections. So I think it would be brilliant to, to see that reflected in, in the way that we assess too. I think it would be yeah, brilliant for, for everybody involved, brilliant for students, brilliant for the institutions. And brilliant for, for the world of work thereafter as well. Absolutely. I think that's all of my questions for now. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. We've been working together for a while. Uh, and so it was brilliant to get you on the podcast and, and hear your thoughts about lots of different topics. We've, we've covered a lot in, in just under an hour. So thank you again. And I hope everybody listening has enjoyed it too. Well, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed the conversation and look forward to more. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. Or you can see all of our episodes on our website at Inspira.com. Or on social media, on Twitter and LinkedIn at Inspira, and we'd love to hear from you. In the next episode, we'll be talking with Morgan Holm, from Jean Shopping University in Sweden about some of the innovative practices that this institution has adopted. 